You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The podcast is sponsored again this week by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace by John Avlon, which is available now. In the spring of 1865, Abraham Lincoln took a dangerous two-week trip to visit the front lines. His example in the closing days of the Civil War offers a portrait of a peacemaker, revealing his belief that a soft peace should follow a hard war. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace is available now wherever books are sold. It's also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook. everyone. Welcome to episode 379 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall, with the last show, we looked at the aftermath of Pickett's Charge and got the Confederates started off on their retreat from Gettysburg. With this episode, before we continue talking about the Confederate retreat to the Potomac and the Federal Pursuit, What we thought we'd do is take a few minutes and grade Robert E. Lee and George Meade on how they performed at Gettysburg. And we're old school, so this won't be a certificate just for participating or even pass-fail. No, we're going to give Lee and Meade an honest-to-goodness letter grade on how they performed at Gettysburg. Okay. Well, let's start with Robert E. Lee. After all, it was his army that kind of stumbled and fumbled into a fight at Gettysburg, but it was entirely Lee's decision to escalate that fighting into a major battle. Exactly. Now, we could break this down and look at Lee's decisions each of the three days of the battle, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. But if you've been following along through this entire story arc, then you already know that we haven't really pulled any punches in saying that we think Lee made some terrible decisions throughout the course of the Battle of Gettysburg, leading up to his staking the whole pot, winner-take-all gamble, on day three in the form of the big artillery bombardment and infantry charge that he hoped would smash the enemy center and be the knockout blow he had been trying to land against the Yankees. Yep, so since we've covered all of that, what we thought we'd do here is go right to what we believe are the root causes of Lee's failure at Gettysburg. And I say causes because we think there are two. Right. Well, first, we keep going back to how badly Lee mishandled his cavalry during the campaign. As y'all know, Jeb Stuart became a convenient scapegoat for the Confederate defeat at Gettysburg when, among those who rushed to heap blame upon him, his week-long ride from Virginia to the crossroads town in Pennsylvania was portrayed as a giant, inexcusable dereliction of duty. And, as a result of Stuart riding off and leaving poor Robert E. Lee in the dark, when the Confederates stumbled into a battle on July 1st, They not only knew nothing about the opposing army, but nothing about the battlefield either. But among those who heaped blame upon Stuart, it seems to have largely escaped their notice that the entire situation was due to Lee's serious misjudgment in permitting his cavalry commander 
to go off on such a questionable adventure in the first place. We said it before, and we'll say it again here. If Lee had kept Stuart and his veteran cavalry well in hand, he would have known when the Federal Army crossed the Potomac, and he would have been able to concentrate the Army of Northern Virginia in line with his own plans, rather than in reaction to the unexpected proximity of the enemy at Gettysburg. What's clear is that the absence of news from Stuart led Lee to act as if the Federal Army was still below the Potomac, and to spread out his army across south-central Pennsylvania. The spy Harrison's report averted the disaster of Lee's army being attacked piecemeal, but the events of July 1st led to an unexpected and unplanned battle, which wouldn't have happened with proper reconnaissance reports from Stuart's cavalry if it had been on hand. But it wasn't, and in the end, Lee's serious misjudgment in allowing Stuart to ride off away from the rest of the army doomed his Pennsylvania campaign and made possible the collision of the opposing armies at Gettysburg. And the collision of the opposing armies at Gettysburg brings us to the second of the root causes of Lee's failure, and that was his hubris. That word may be unfamiliar to you, but hubris is a term borrowed from Greek tragedy, and what it boils down to is excessive or unreasonable confidence in one's own abilities. So basically, this is the sin of pride. Right. And we think you see this come into play even with Lee's decision to strike north into Pennsylvania. We made no bones about the fact we believed Lee went north seeking a decisive battle with the Federal Army, the kind of absolutely smashing victory that had so far eluded him, despite his previous battlefield successes. Yes, Lee went north looking to take the war out of Virginia for a while. Yes, he went north seeking to gather food and forage from the enemy's territory. But when all was said and done, we think Lee went north looking to destroy the Army of the Potomac. He wanted to secure the kind of smashing victory that would take the wind out of the Norse's desire to continue the war and thus go a long way towards securing Confederate independence. And so Lee struck up into Pennsylvania, not knowing where that decisive battle might take place, but we believe so confident in his own abilities and in the fighting prowess of his army that he was sure he would be able to whip the Yankees any time, any place. Before the campaign began, when he was reorganizing his forces into three corps, Lee had written to John B. Hood saying that he thought the Army of Northern Virginia, if properly organized and led, quote, would be invincible. At the start of the campaign, among the soldiers of the Army of Northern Virginia, confidence in Lee and themselves was absolute. Private Sam Brewer of the 8th Georgia, part of Hood's division, no doubt spoke not only for himself, but also for most of his comrades, when he wrote to his wife, We have evidently proven ourselves too much for the Yankees to do anything with us. And this drives our boys to new action, for I really believe our troops generally are more anxious to fight them now than they ever were. For Lee, the collision of the armies at Gettysburg may have led to an unexpected and unplanned battle, but all indications point to the fact that he was nevertheless confident that he and his men would whip the Yankees. Every major decision he made during the three days of the battle points to the fact that he was convinced all he had to do was keep hammering at the enemy and they would collapse. At Gettysburg, it's hard to escape the conclusion that Lee's decisions were driven by the fact he was supremely confident that he not only had the better army, but that he was a better general than George Meade, who had only been in command of the Army of the Potomac for three days before the start of the battle. Colonel Fremantle, the British military observer with the Army of Northern Virginia, writing in the immediate aftermath of the battle, 
noted this sin of overconfidence. He wrote, quote, It is impossible to avoid seeing that the cause of this check to the Confederates lies in the utter contempt felt for the enemy by all ranks. It probably won't surprise you to find out we're giving Robert E. Lee an F for his performance at Gettysburg. And while we may be persuaded to give the rank-and-file Confederate soldiers an A for effort during the three days of the battle, there's no getting around the fact that they were fighting in a losing cause and, when all was said and done, they were unable to best their counterparts in blue. If it didn't surprise you that we gave Lee a failing grade for getting his tail kicked at Gettysburg, you probably also won't be surprised to hear that our assessment of George Meade's performance is much more favorable. We think it's a shame that even in recent quite popular narratives on Gettysburg, George Meade still isn't given his due for winning the battle. And in fact, It seems as if some people go out of their way in their refusal to give Meade credit for his victory, usually trotting out some variation of the ludicrous claim that Meade didn't so much win the Battle of Gettysburg as Robert E. Lee lost it. The fact of the matter is that George Meade, unexpectedly and against the odds, thoroughly outgeneraled Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg. Meade made small mistakes, to be sure, but avoided making fatal ones, and he succeeded in overcoming the results of blunders by some of his own subordinates. And yes, here we're looking at you, Dan Sickles. Given that he had been in command of the Army of the Potomac only three days when the battle started, we think Meade did a spectacular job. From the time George Meade had arrived on the battlefield before daylight on July 2nd, he acted carefully and exploited his army's advantages. It might have been, as Longstreet argued, that, quote, we made the battle for him, end quote. And it might have been that Meade and the Army of the Potomac could only have won a defensive battle, but that was the battle given to him, and that was the battle he won. At the meeting with his senior subordinates in the Leicester House on the night of July 2nd, Meade set in motion the events and decisions that resulted in victory the next day. With the advice and support of his corps commanders, Meade's determination to stand and fight the next day was confirmed. Later that night, he issued orders for the retaking of the lost works on Culp's Hill, and during the morning hours of July 3rd, he conferred with his corps commanders, designating reserve units to respond to a crisis, worked closely with Henry Hunt on the disposition and use of the Federal artillery, and rode along his lines, conducting further examinations. Meade wasn't present at Cemetery Ridge to witness the repulse of Pickett's charge, but his preparations and orders had been executed by others. The arrival of Union Reserve batteries and of nearly 13,000 troops in support of the front line testified to Meade's and others' masterful performances on the final day of the battle. Perhaps most importantly, at Gettysburg, unlike in times past, the leadership of the Army didn't fail the rank-and-file soldiers in blue and gave them a fighting chance for victory. In our eyes, the real winners of the Battle of Gettysburg were the hard-marching, hard-fighting, long-suffering soldiers of the Army of the Potomac. They hadn't enjoyed much success so far in the war. They'd followed some of the most inept field commanders America would ever produce. And yes, here we're looking at you, Little Mac. But at Gettysburg, at places like McPherson's Ridge, Devil's Den, the Wheatfield, Little Round Top, Culp's Hill, East Cavalry Field, the Angle and the Copse of Trees, The boys in blue fought like tigers and proved they could meet the best the Confederacy had to throw at them and come out winners. After three days of unprecedented bloodletting, 
when the fury had finally ended, the men of the Army of the Potomac knew that they had won not only a victory, but redemption. Robert E. Lee thought a federal soldier, quote, supposed he could walk right over the Army of the Potomac. Instead, wrote another Yankee, he and his comrades, quote, gave the rebels one of the damnedest lickings that they have ever had. For their victory at the Battle of Gettysburg, we are giving both George Meade and the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac an A+. As we talked about in the last episode, Lee had staked everything on the big artillery bombardment and infantry charge on July 3rd that he hoped would smash the enemy center and be the knockout blow he had been trying to land against the Yankees at Gettysburg. But when that gamble failed and the attack was repulsed, he came to the painful realization that his defeated army could no longer remain in Pennsylvania. His campaign, his bold strike north, was over, and Lee now had to order a retreat from the enemy's country. Arriving back at his headquarters around 1 a.m. on July 4th, an exhausted Lee met with Brigadier General John Imboden, who commanded a brigade of Confederate cavalry. Imboden's command was really more mounted infantry, and so not particularly effective at carrying out the traditional jobs of cavalry like Jeb Stuart's horsemen. But still, Lee now had an important assignment for Imboden. Lee explained to his fellow Virginian that his brigade would be tasked with escorting the Army's wagon train of wounded back to safety below the Potomac. Lee instructed Imboden to shepherd the wagons westward and across South Mountain through Cashtown Pass. Once he reached the village of Greenwood, Pennsylvania, he was to then turn south and make his way to Williamsport, Maryland, where he was to cross the Potomac before continuing south to Winchester, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley. While Imboden moved west and then south, Lee's main body, his three infantry corps and artillery, would follow a more direct route, moving westerly through Fairfield and across South Mountain via Monterey Pass. A journey of more than 40 miles lay ahead for the Army of Northern Virginia, and Lee was anxious to get moving as soon as possible. The rebels spent much of Saturday, July 4th, gathering as many of their wounded as possible and loading them on the wagons. But late that afternoon, the Confederate retreat from Gettysburg at last started off when Imboden set his forlorn column in motion. In a driving rain, which turned roads into quagmires and the fields into swamps, Imboden and his troopers escorted hundreds of wagons westward, laden with more than 8,000 wounded men, across South Mountain and then south toward Williamsport. One of Imboden's troopers later said it was the quote-unquote saddest of all the nights he spent in the war. He remembered how, quote, we were already sad and disheartened by our misfortune, and this mental condition was made worse by the thunder and lightning and the great torrents of rain that came down, augmented by the horrible groans of the wounded and dying. Along the route, many of the wounded men died, and their bodies were taken off the wagons to be either left along the roadside or buried hastily in an unmarked grave. John Imboden would later write, quote, During this one night, I realized more of the horrors of war than I had in all the preceding years. Near sunset on July 4th, and just several hours after Imboden set off with the vast procession of wagons bearing the wounded, the combat units of Lee's army began to march away from Gettysburg. A.P. Hill's men, who had kicked off the battle three days earlier, led the retreat, followed by Longstreet's thinned ranks, and finally Ewell's troops brought up the rear. Also marching with the column were thousands of Federal prisoners, being guarded by the survivors of Pickett's shattered division. 
Lee had hoped to unload this burden earlier that day when he proposed, under a flag of truce, an exchange of prisoners. But Meade, who had no authority to agree to such an arrangement, turned down Lee's request. The system of prisoner exchanges that had been adopted earlier in the war had broken down after the Confederacy refused to treat black U.S. soldiers who were taken prisoner the same as white POWs. Exactly. At any rate, as the Confederates slipped away on their weary trek from Gettysburg, George Meade met with his subordinates for another consultation. Earlier in the day, Meade had issued a congratulatory order to his men, praising their sacrifices, but also reminding them that there was still work to be done. Quote, Our task is not yet accomplished, and the commanding general looks to the army for greater efforts to drive from our soil every vestige of the presence of the enemy. Meeting with his subordinates, Meade now sought their advice about how best to finish the job. When the question was asked whether the army ought to hold its position the following day, all but three of the generals answered affirmatively. When asked whether they should assume the offensive if Lee was discovered to still be holding his line, the answer was a unanimous no. If it was discovered that Lee was retreating, as Meade and the others believed would be the case, the question became how best to pursue. Of all those at the meeting, only David Burney, commanding the Third Corps in place of the wounded Sickles, wanted to directly follow on the heels of the retreating rebels. The others thought it more advisable to move south toward Frederick, Maryland, and then cut westward across South Mountain, with the hope of intercepting Lee's army before it could reach the Potomac. Only the Union cavalry, they agreed, should directly shadow the Confederates' movement. Although this would force the Army of the Potomac to cover much more ground than the rebels, who now had the inside track to the river, it would place the Federals between Lee and Washington, thus allowing Meade to cover the capital in accordance with his instructions as Army commander. Following the Confederates directly might also be dangerous, the generals agreed, since it would allow Lee to set up strong defensive positions covering the South Mountain Gaps. Well, Meade would ultimately concur with the majority opinion and decide the Army of the Potomac would indirectly follow the retreating enemy. First, though, he had to make sure that Lee was, in fact, retreating. Uncle John Sedgwick and the men of his Sixth Corps conducted a reconnaissance in force early the next morning, the morning of Sunday, July 5th, which revealed that Lee had indeed started his army on its retreat back to Virginia. When Meade learned of this, he began preparing for the pursuit. He instructed Sedgwick to continue pushing on toward Fairfield to find out how far Lee's army had gone. Meanwhile, in an effort to better expedite the pursuit, Meade divided the Army of the Potomac into three wings, naming Generals Sedgwick, Slocum, and Howard as the wing commanders. Meade also directed Alfred Pleasanton to put the Federal cavalry in motion, with orders to, quote-unquote, harass and annoy the Confederates as much as possible during their retreat. Various detachments of Federal cavalry had already been annoying and harassing Imboden's wagon train of wounded. Finally, though, on the afternoon of July 5th, after a thoroughly exhausting ordeal, Imboden and the wounded arrived in Williamsport. However, for the weary Imboden, the situation only worsened once he got there. Checking the river crossings, he discovered that the heavy rains of the last few days had flooded the Potomac, thus making it impossible to ford. Imboden also learned that the Confederate pontoon bridge that had spanned the river several miles to the south had been destroyed. You see, the previous morning, a detachment of Federal cavalry had driven off the rebel defenders and set the pontoon bridge on fire. That meant that until the floodwaters receded, or until a new pontoon bridge could be constructed, the Confederates would not be able to cross the Potomac in any numbers and were trapped on the northern side of the river. 
Realizing that Federal cavalry was right on his heels, Imboden immediately began preparing a line of defense at Williamsport, organizing his horsemen for the work and appealing to those of the wounded who felt capable of lending a hand or shouldering a musket. As the Federal infantry started off on their pursuit of the rebels, Union horsemen were riding hard after Lee's retreating columns carrying out Meade's instructions to annoy and harass the enemy as much as possible. As far as the horsemen in blue were concerned, what followed in the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg was a week-long series of skirmishes and sharp clashes, which one of Jeb Stuart's cavalrymen described as, quote, one continuous fight. During those days, there would be some spirited action between the opposing cavalry forces, including a fight at Funkstown, Maryland, on July 10th, which also involved some infantry forces on both sides. But through it all, Jeb Stuart and his rebel horsemen turned in a superb performance in both screening the Confederate infantry while they marched toward the Potomac and allowing Lee time to construct a strong defensive line near Williamsport. The main body of the Army of Northern Virginia completed its retreat to the Potomac and arrived in the area of Hagerstown and Williamsport on July 7th and 8th. With the river flooded, Lee's immediate attention was naturally focused on establishing a strong defensive position, even as work was started on a new pontoon bridge. Meanwhile, the Army of the Potomac had marched away from Gettysburg in three columns, led by the three wing commanders with each ordered to converge near Middletown, Maryland. The Federal infantry covered a lot of ground in a short time, marching much of the way through heavy rainstorms and over washed-out roadways that were nearly ankle-deep in mud. During the first few days of the pursuit, some elements of the Army covered more than 20 miles a day, others nearly 30. Meade was marching his men hard, hoping to strike the enemy again before Lee could get across the Potomac. Despite the wretched weather and muddy roads, many in the army marched with heads held high in the expectation that they'd be able to deliver yet another blow to Lee's once seemingly invincible rebel army and maybe even destroy the Army of Northern Virginia before it could get away across the Potomac. Meade's superiors in Washington, both civilian and military, also hoped the same thing. On July 7th, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck telegraphed Meade, congratulating him on his quote-unquote brilliant victory at Gettysburg, but also urging him to quote, follow it up and give Lee another blow before he can reach the Potomac. Meanwhile, Abraham Lincoln was also hopeful that Meade would catch and strike Lee. After the president learned that Confederate forces at Gettysburg had surrendered, Unconditionally to Ulysses S. Grant on July 4th, he was certain that if Meade attacked Lee this side of the Potomac, then the rebellion would be dealt a death blow. Meade arrived in Frederick, Maryland on July 7th and continued thereafter to receive regular dispatches from Washington, urging him not to let Lee get away. But this was much easier said than done, especially by those in the capital far removed from the realities of the situation. The roads were not only in poor condition, but there were still two mountain ranges to cross, the Catoctin and South Mountain Ranges. Plus, his men were weary and so short on supplies that a good number of the Federal soldiers had been marching barefoot since their shoes had long since succumbed to the rigors of the campaign. Meade himself was thoroughly exhausted and his patience was wearing thin with Halleck and Lincoln, whose expectations didn't seem to take into account a worn-out army of the Potomac that desperately needed supplies and that had suffered appalling casualties, especially among officers, at Gettysburg. In a letter penned to his wife on July 8th, Meade's mental and physical fatigue are obvious. Quote, From the time I took command till today, now over 10 days, I have not changed my clothes, have not had a regular night's rest, and many nights not a wink of sleep. 
and for several days did not even wash my hands and face, no regular food, and all the time in a great state of mental anxiety. However, in that same letter, Meade predicted another big fight, quote, before Lee can cross the river, end quote. But it was not to be. The Army of the Potomac arrived opposite Lee's lines on July 12th, and what the Yankees saw was like cold water thrown on their previously high hopes of having another chance to battle the Confederates. Because having had ample time to prepare, the rebel army was hunkered down in an excellent defensive position running nearly six miles in length. The Confederate infantry, with well-sighted artillery, was dug in on a series of ridges and hills, behind creeks and marshy ground, while the Federals would have to cover daunting stretches of open fields just to approach the rebel lines. One Union officer declared the enemy's works, quote, were by far the strongest I have yet seen, evidently laid out by engineers, and built as if they meant to stand a month's siege. Meade wanted to attack, but after finding Lee in what he described as, quote-unquote, a very strong position, he hesitated, quite rightly wanting to conduct a thorough examination of the enemy line and its approaches. Still, he was sure battle was imminent. He wired Halleck that night, saying, quote, It is my intention to attack them tomorrow, unless something intervenes to prevent it. End quote. However, after sending that message to Halleck, Meade summoned his chief lieutenants to headquarters for another consultation. The exhausted and stressed army commander, pressured by Washington to attack, admitted to his subordinates that he was not entirely sure of the layout of the Confederate position, but nevertheless he made it known that he wanted to assume offensive operations the following day with a reconnaissance in force which would be converted into a full-scale assault should a weakness be detected in the rebel line. Meade had some supporters for this plan, but five of his corps commanders, Sedgwick, George Sykes, Henry Slocum, William French, now leading the Third Corps, and William Hayes, who was commanding the Second Corps in place of the wounded Hancock and Gibbon, all opposed such a move. They argued that from the looks of it, the Confederates had a formidable position, and to attack it without adequate preparation might result in a disaster that would undo all that had been gained at Gettysburg. Having heard the thoughts of his chief lieutenants, Meade conceded to those who argued against an attack the following day. Instead, any offensive action would be delayed until further reconnaissance could be carried out and until he had a better understanding of the enemy lines. There was some light skirmishing on July 13th, but things were otherwise quiet. Yet with each passing hour, the waters of the Potomac lowered while the Confederates at last completed work on a hastily constructed pontoon bridge at Falling Waters, which stretched some 800 feet across the river. Time was quickly running out if Meade wanted to strike the rebels again before they escaped across the Potomac. On the other side of the lines, Lee was so confident in the strength of his defensive lines that he held out hope that the Yankees might still attack and that he could gain some sort of victory here at the end of the campaign to offset the disaster at Gettysburg. Meade notified Washington of his meeting the night before with his generals and of his decision to delay the assault on the rebel lines. Halleck, who had been anticipating word of an attack against the trapped Confederates, couldn't hide his frustration and famously wired back, quote, You are strong enough to attack and defeat the enemy before he can effect a crossing. Act upon your own judgment and make your generals execute your orders. Call no councils of war. It is proverbial that councils never fight. That night, Meade decided to follow through with his original intention, an attack. So he sent out orders to his commanders to move forward at 7 a.m. the next morning, July 14th. But as Meade and the Army of the Potomac would discover, by then it was too late.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. While Meade prepared to launch an attack, the soldiers of Lee's battered army slipped quietly across the Potomac. Yule's men crossed at the ford near Williamsport, while Longstreet's troops made their way across the shaky pontoon bridge. By daybreak on Tuesday, July 14th, the Confederate cavalry and A.P. Hill's infantry were making their way across the pontoon bridge. It was a difficult and at times hazardous process, especially for those who had waded through the waist-deep water by torchlight during the overnight hours. Still, by morning on the 14th, most of Lee's army was safely on the far shore of the Potomac. However, on the southern end of the Confederate position, opposite Falling Waters, a portion of the Rebel Army, soldiers from Heath's and Pender's divisions, remained on the Maryland side of the river, waiting for their turn to cross. Upon discovering that most of the Rebel Army had escaped, Union Cavalry General John Buford planned an attack to strike the Confederates who were still on the near side of the river, but before he could carry it out, some of Kilpatrick's horsemen went galloping forward and hit the rebel rear guard. A South Carolinian recorded the chaotic scene that followed as Federal cavalrymen came crashing into the largely disorganized Confederate ranks. Quote, The wildest excitement ensued. There was no time for arrangement, but every man must depend on his own instincts. The enemy dashed in, firing pistols and sabering everything in their way. The noise was horrible, the confusion inextricable. There was fighting, flying, shouting, all at once. Kilpatrick's horsemen, fed into the fight piecemeal, were repulsed with considerable losses. Buford's troopers next entered the fray, striking hard at portions of the Confederate rear guard. Heath's and Pender's men were ultimately driven back to the river, but not before dozens of them had been killed or wounded and hundreds more captured. Among the rebels struck down was Johnston Pettigrew, who was shot in the stomach and mortally wounded. But under cover of the Confederate artillery lining the far bank of the river, the rebel infantry scurried across the pontoon bridge, and by noon they had completed their retreat across the Potomac. This sharp clash at Falling Waters on July 14th was the final fighting of the Gettysburg Campaign. Meade would face harsh criticism in the days ahead, especially from newspaper editors and politicians, who were disappointed the pursuit of Lee after Gettysburg hadn't resulted in the destruction of the rebel army. According to John Hay, Lincoln's personal secretary, the president was, quote-unquote, deeply grieved when he learned of Lee's escape. To Hay, Lincoln vented his frustration, saying, We had them within our grasp, 
we had only to stretch forth our hands, and they were ours. However much it grieves us to admit it, we have to say that Lincoln's expectations were unrealistic, and his criticism of Meade was unfair. Lincoln had no concept of how a defeated army was pursued, nor did he understand the logistical difficulties facing the Army of the Potomac, nor did he appreciate the strength of the defensive position that the Confederate Army occupied at Williamsport. To be sure, it all looked easier from the perspective of the telegraph office or when tracing movements on a map. But, as Tracy said, Lincoln was wrong if he expected Meade to blindly throw his tired, hungry, and battered army against the Confederate lines on July 13th. When Henry Halleck wired Meade, making known the president's dissatisfaction, the exhausted Meade had had enough. Having been thrust into army command just two weeks earlier, in the very midst of an ongoing campaign, with an invading Confederate army deep in Pennsylvania, and now having bested Robert E. Lee in one of the largest, bloodiest battles of the war, George Meade was feeling underappreciated and angered over the criticism from Washington. George Meade tendered his resignation, but Halleck refused to accept it, and Meade would retain command of the Army of the Potomac for the remainder of the war. Lincoln poured out his disappointment in a letter addressed to Meade and written on the night of July 14th. I have just seen your dispatch to General Halleck, asking to be relieved of your command because of some supposed censure of mine. I am very, very grateful to you for the magnificent success you gave the cause of our country at Gettysburg, and I am sorry now to be the author of the slightest pain to you. But still, Lincoln couldn't suppress his frustration, saying, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our late success at Vicksburg, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably by it. Finishing up his thoughts, Lincoln folded the unsigned letter, sealed it in an envelope, and tucked it away in his desk. He never sent it to Meade. Commanding armies and fighting battles sometimes seems an easy thing to do for politicians and newspaper editors far removed from the front lines, and for historians far removed in time from the events in question. The truth of the matter was that Meade's opportunity wasn't as golden as Lincoln would have liked to think. For every critic of George Meade, there were those who defended his decision to at least delay the attack at Williamsport especially after they had taken a look at Lee's now-abandoned position. Artillery chief Henry Hunt, who wasn't exactly a fan of Meade's, nevertheless concluded that, quote, A careful survey of the enemy's entrenched line after it was abandoned justified the opinion of the corps commanders against an attack, as it showed that an assault would have been disastrous to us. Meanwhile, Meade's opponent, Robert E. Lee, would also face criticism in the wake of Gettysburg, though not nearly as heavily. In fact, in that late summer of 1863, as the rebellion reeled from the twin defeats at Gettysburg and Vicksburg, most Confederates thought that Vicksburg was the more devastating to their cause, and with good reason. The defeat of Lee's army at Gettysburg was upsetting, but it wasn't nearly as crushing and important as the loss of Vicksburg. The third week of July found Lee's army near Culpeper, Virginia, licking its wounds. Damage to the Army of Northern Virginia's officer corps was severe. Losses among field officers had been awful, murderously so in the most heavily engaged brigades. Before the summer of 1863, the shortage of capable officers had already become a problem, but the losses at Gettysburg turned the problem into a crisis. In fact, in command and capability, 
Indeed, in offensive power, the Army of Northern Virginia would never be the same after July 1863. In reporting to Jefferson Davis, Lee did his best to minimize the damage and put a positive spin on what had happened in Pennsylvania. Lee allowed that he could, perhaps, be blamed for, quote-unquote, expecting too much of his soldiers, but that the losses his army sustained at Gettysburg, which he admitted were heavy, were nevertheless not any higher than if he would have remained in Virginia that summer to battle it out there with the Federals. Lee reasoned that even though he had met with defeat at Gettysburg, nevertheless the campaign of striking up into Pennsylvania was one that was well worth undertaking, and that his strategic thinking had been sound. It was just in the execution of his plans where his army came up short. And indeed, ever since the battle, in efforts to hold Lee blameless for the defeat at Gettysburg, fingers have been pointed at almost all of his top generals, placing blame on their shoulders for a long list of supposed failures and shortcomings. Longstreet for dragging his heels, Stuart for leaving Lee blind, Yule, well, for not being Stonewall Jackson, and A.P. Hill and his subordinates for instigating the battle on July 1st. Some fault may perhaps be found in the actions of these men, but still, in the end, it was Lee's campaign, and it was his battle, so responsibility for the defeat at Gettysburg was his as well. Like George Meade, but for different reasons, Robert E. Lee also tendered his resignation in the wake of Gettysburg, citing declining health and believing that someone younger could better fill his position. However, Jefferson Davis would not hear of it. Davis told Lee, quote, to ask me to substitute you by someone in my judgment more fit to command or who would possess more of the confidence of the army is to demand an impossibility. Lee would thus remain at the helm of the Army of Northern Virginia as the hopes of the Confederacy continued to rest more and more heavily upon his shoulders and those of his men. As it was, Gettysburg did not end the war. Even the powerful combination of Gettysburg and Vicksburg did not end the war in the summer of 1863. It would go on for almost two more years, because two more years would be required to grind the bitter resistance of the Confederacy down to its nub. In the final accounting, the terrible bloodletting at Gettysburg was a victory for George Meade, for the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac, and for the Union. But it wasn't decisive enough to bring the Confederacy to its knees. Ordinary men who had passed through those three extraordinary days at Gettysburg tried to explain what it had meant. One of them was Captain John Blinn of the 20th Massachusetts. He had suffered a mortal wound on July 3rd, and with the brief time left to him, he penned two letters home. One was to his wife Cora, telling her, I die in my country's cause, and releasing her to forget him and, in the future, be happy with another man who might love her. The second letter went to his mother, brother, and sister. Quote, Your soldier boy is wounded, but we whip the enemy, and the old flag is again glorious. My wound is a very serious one, and I fear amputation may be necessary. I may die, but, mother, God give you the strength and grace to bear the affliction. My country called and I came to die upon her altar. God bless you and keep you. I can write no more. Sidney Richardson of the 21st Georgia, who had been spared at Gettysburg, had seen the future and shared it in a letter with his parents. Quote, But I am willing to fight them as long as General Lee says fight. But I think we are ruined now, without going farther with it. This war is hard to account for, It is no telling how it will end, or when it will end. After the Confederates escaped across the Potomac, the third Maine's Charles Maxwell 
probably summed up the feelings of many of the long-suffering soldiers of the Army of the Potomac when he wrote, quote, All were chagrined at the escape of Lee. All were anxious to make an attack, preferring to fight him here to Virginia. Nevertheless, Maxwell still hoped that Gettysburg, along with Grant's victory at Vicksburg, might have broken the back of the rebellion and peace could come soon. Quote, I hope this war will give the death blow to slavery and that I may live to see the end of the war. But even if he didn't live to see the end of the war, he had great confidence in the nation's future. Quote, this is the great object of my life, to aid in crushing this monstrous rebellion. I believe it matters little when a man dies, but how and where, that is all important. And in no way can a man die so gloriously as when he dies for his country. I have full confidence that the all-wise dispenser of human events will not let this country, the beacon light of the struggling millions, go down in darkness and despair. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Retreat from Gettysburg, Lee, Logistics, and the Pennsylvania Campaign by Kent Masterson Brown. And for those of you who might be interested in following up with what happened after the Confederates escaped across the Potomac, we'll also throw in a bonus book recommendation, Meade and Lee After Gettysburg, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg Campaign. From Falling Waters to Culpeper Courthouse, July 14th to 31st, 1863, by Jeffrey William Hunt. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website at www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we bring the curtain down on this episode, we want to take a moment to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So, thank you to Tim G., Mark C., and Gavin H. And thanks to Tom M., Michael S., Ronald B., and Rob S. for their donations. Just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll look at the Gettysburg Address. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey y'all, just a reminder that we're sponsored again this week by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace by John Avlon, which is available now. In the spring of 1865, Abraham Lincoln took a dangerous two-week trip to visit the front lines. His example in the closing days of the Civil War offers a portrait of a peacemaker, revealing his belief that a soft peace should follow a hard war. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace is available now wherever books are sold. It's also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook.